Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Constance Congdon about her play To Washington Square. Connie, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. I'd love to start with some kind of general background about, about kind of your your life and and your life as an artist. So what was the place of theater in your childhood? I had hand puppets. <laughs> and <laughs> auspicious beginnings. Yes, and I used to put on puppet shows by creating a sort of uh, stage or a curtain. It wasn't really a curtain. It was just, you know, for puppets, you just need a place that you can hide behind so the puppets can pop up and talk. And I created it between my bed and my parents' bed. So I didn't have my own room until I was uh, almost 10 years old after my mother died. And I was uh, moved to Colorado and given to uh, this aunt and uncle, very flamboyant, crazy, alcoholic people. Um, But uh, my basic life, the first nine years of my life, Uh, My father worked for Carter Oil. He was a welder, and he welded these big pipes uh, so the oil could be transported from, it was usually, you know, like uh, the border of Canada Mm -hmm. all the way down to um, Oklahoma. And so we moved around a bit, and it was a blue collar kind of life, except there were no unions. So it always, I always feel weird talking about blue collar, mm. but, uh, so that was, that was my life. My mother had been a school teacher in Kansas, uh, on the prairie actually in a one room schoolhouse. She had taught however many grades, kindergarten to sixth. Um, and, in a one-room schoolhouse on the prairie outside of Dodge City, Kansas. So I come from these very stoic farmer types. And in the case of my mother and father, oh, everyone says, oh, we were poor. Well, we were poor. That is the fact. But I didn't feel poor Mm -hmm. at all. I just, I never never occurred to me. Uh, But in the years that followed, as an adult, I got to live lots of different places. And I got so the references in the in the play to things like Miss Porter's school. I knew exactly what that was. I knew Mm -hmm. the names of all of the really good prep schools. uh, Because I ended up in Amherst, 
uh, teaching at Amherst College. So this it's a long, long arc of a career, and I worked very hard, and I enjoyed it tremendously. So uh, the only unfortunate thing is neither of my parents lived long enough to see me, um, you know, see my successes. Mm-hmm. And I am sorry about that. Uh, and, so, yeah. And you got an MFA from UMass Amherst, right? Yes. I, I went back to school because I wanted to, te- I always wanted to teach. I knew that. Mm-hmm. And I tried teaching in the high school as a sub. Hated it. I don't know how those people get anything done. They are on the inf- they are the infantry, those mm-hmm. high school teachers, and bless them. Uh, so I knew that I would need some kind of degree to teach in college, and I was shopping around. And UMass had uh, an MFA. wasn't sure what that was, and they had one in playwriting. And I thought, well, I've written a play. Let's give it a shot. So I entered and I was very prolific and they produced everything I wrote. And it was a great, great time for me. And then after that, I went to work at the Hartford Stage Company where I learned more and more about professional theater. And uh, after that, I worked briefly at the public theater. And also, I always had one foot in the Children's Theater of Minneapolis, Mm. where I was a happy, happy writer. And they, again, gave, they gave me these productions that are just gorgeous. That's They're, one of the, the great children's theaters in, in the country. I mean, that's that Minneapolis children's theater is, is really known for being an excellent, uh, excellent theater. Yeah. I think it's the best in North America. Uh, so, and I, I worked at a, a competitor, the Seattle children's theater. And I, I still think that the, uh, that the Minneapolis Children's Theater is still is still the best. My uh, my grandmother was a public school teacher in Minneapolis, and so she saw many many children's theater productions uh, o- over the years, and always spoke highly of that organization. Well, she may have seen some of my productions. I think I did seven or something. Yeah, very um, possible. I yeah. So that was a very very good thing. Um, I got that gig because I did. I took uh, the Gilded Age by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner, and adapted it into a play for the Actors Company. Is that what they were? John Hausman's uh, acting company, and they toured it all over the United States and in Canada. Uh, again, I love that show. But John Cranny, who was the artistic director at Children's Theater saw that production and asked me if I'd be interested in adapting Raggedy Ann and Andy. And uh, I thought, oh, it's a doll play. What am I forgetting? My attachment to all these puppets, which I used Mm -hmm. to carry with me. And I remember Mark Lamos, the artistic director at Hartford Stage, just looking at me and going, I think you should do this. So I did. And so many, so many great experiences there. Yeah. 
So when you first started writing plays, which this must have been in your kind of mid 30s, who were some of your influences as a playwright? Whether are there other playwrights or I don't know, maybe maybe more more puppetry. I'm not sure what influenced you at that point. Well, everything influenced me, but playwrights specifically, well, Thornton Wilder. Mm. And uh of course Shakespeare and I still feel very strongly a strong bond with him. Uh, and then when I discovered Chekhov, Chekhov, then Carol Churchill had a huge effect on me Mm -hmm. and, um, Edward Bond, uh, and I'm leaving people out, but it's because it's kind of overwhelming now when I, when I think, um, another, another kind of, um, sphere that you've worked in is adapting uh early modern comedy uh plays by tart plays like tartuffe servant of two masters has that work influenced your original writing at all i think it's just made me a better craftsperson mm-hmm. it's taught me craft and it certainly allowed me to do something that i have a natural talent for and that's to write in iambic pentameter and rhyming couplets. So the first play I did like that was The Misanthrope, and I did it for ACT in San Francisco. And I remember being on the airplane and starting to just write uh, some things for scenes, and it came so easily to me. I thought, so this is what talent feels like. (laughs) Like when you really have a talent for something, you go, okay, I can do this, you know. And since then, um, I've just enjoyed it so much and just finished something for the Red Bull Theater, uh, and they're going to produce it. And it's it's only 10 minutes, but it's got a lot of – it's an iambic pentameter, rhyming couplets, as well as other uh, forms of heightened language. So there's that. And then, in contrast, when I wrote Native American, which is a little bit about my childhood, that's just really good, what I would call American realism, or some people might call it naturalism. So that's just the way people talk. That's the way the folk talk that I knew when I was growing up. Um, Yeah, so the fluidity I felt and the confidence I got. There's nothing like writing something and getting it in production almost immediately. Uh, yeah. And I'm good, I'm good at writing in rehearsal. I enjoy that. And I actually make things better instead of worse, which is really good. Yeah. Yeah, that can sometimes happen that you, you have those last minute edits and you're like, oh, no, why did I put that in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, you have- yeah. No, 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 go on. The Gilded Age uh, is a huge novel, and the first preview, I cut 45 minutes off of the play, and it was exhilarating, you know, because when you get rid of stuff, then other stuff becomes, it's much clearer. Mm -hmm. It's given, it's just given more prominence, and so I continued, continued to work on that until it was time to stop and then it went on uh, 
it went on tour. So, by the way, my collaborators, one of them is Mel Marvin, whom I've collaborated with quite a bit. And he was invaluable. Uh, and Mark Lamos was the director. And it, it's um, and Greg Lemming was the dramaturg. But, you know, we all cross over. And uh, I've gotten great comments from designers, love designers. Uh, so, and of course, as always, actors, because I actually really trust what actors have to say. So, and I, I'm really good at being able to weed out now, can't use that, can't use that, bingo, I can use that. Mm. Uh, I just, I love that whole collaborative uh, way of making plays, which is the way I believe Shakespeare made his plays. Yeah. And, and reading your plays, you really get a sense that you're kind of trying to take advantage of all the different uh, resources that, that the theater offers. I mean, it, you're not just concerned with the dialogue, but you're concerned with the stage picture and the costumes and the set. And, you know, it, you, you really kind of are thinking about how all of those are elements of storytelling. Right. I mean, they all tell the story and mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, you know, the form of a play can be as profound as the what we would call content. You can't really separate these two, but let's try. Well, if mm -hmm. you just take the what the actors say to one another, um, also the form can have a can be very very profound and make its own kind of statement. Um, things like blackouts, uh, which create a whole rhythm in a play. So that if you use too many of them, it can be sort of like a strobe, a strobe light effect on the narrative. And um, so we use those judiciously. And it's all, all the elements, I think about all the elements when I'm writing. Now, I you know, the designers obviously will have their own ideas and that. So I just put down everything that I see and then they can decide what of that they can use and what they can't use. Mm -hmm. So you, you did, you mentioned teaching at Amherst and you, you taught at Amherst for, um, for, for a while, for over 20 years. I'd like to know kind of what did that experience teaching playwriting to what it must have been hundreds of students teach you about playwriting? Well, it's a, it had a profound effect on me. Uh, as I was driving up for that first class, it suddenly struck me that my students were going to be people who taken tests and gotten A's. <laughs> and that, that is a different crowd um, and so I wanted to shake them loose from trying to please me, trying to come up with the right answer. So I decided to use the SAT form, which is the uh, question is set up. And then I tell them how much time they have. And then I say, go. And they, they have to write. And then until I, t I give them a warning and I'll say in this scene in uh, five minutes. And then I'll count down for the last minute, purposely distracting them so that they don't get that, that thing that happens when you get just nailed into what you're doing. 
and can get really hit a roadblock. So I came up with these exercises and they were very, very successful. And then I, I asked uh, the my students, I said, now I want you to go type these up and please do not change a word, please. I beg of you, don't change a word because I didn't think they knew enough about what to trust and what not to trust. And when, you know, the roommate helped or something and they come in and we read what they've written, I could usually tell immediately that somebody else has been at it. It just lacked a freshness. So we would read these and they would be wonderful. And then they began to trust something they may not have trusted before, which is their original impulse. Mm. And to get Amherst College students uh, to believe in that and then just make a commitment and go for it with me saying, look, you know, what's going to happen? It's you're not going to lose your scholarship because your play is, <laughs> you know, doesn't work. This is just a class. And of course, what happened is the, the work was really great. You know, and a lot of my students have gone on uh, to have careers as professional writers. And I hear from them uh, about whether they wrote plays or not, about how this writing without stopping and editing oneself, how it really does work. It's so simple. And you know what? I still use it myself every day. Wow. I've been writing poetry a lot. And so I'm writing, working on a poem. I'm writing a poem, writing a poem. And then I go, oh, my God, this is so stupid. And then I go, no, no, we just keep going forward. Okay, I did this already before. No, this is that. Say, I just keep going and keep going and keep going until the end. And then I type it up and then I read it. And I end up keeping 98% of it. Hmm. So I know this method works. We've had so much more training in critique and analysis than in actually creating works of art, works of writing. So that part is very sophisticated and tends to be really kind of nasty sitting in your room going, oh, my God, are you really going to write about that again? You know, and that that voice needs to shut the hell up get that voice <laughs> out of your study and i now really do believe it's uh it's bad so i don't listen to it yeah. um yeah so that's what i learned i learned a way of teaching playwriting uh or sometimes i call it being in the room while my students learn playwriting through just uh giving them these specific prompts is not really how to describe it. Uh, I create a structure for them and we write plays. We do not write exercises. Uh, they are actual plays. And then we read them in class and we move around and we talk about entrance exits, you know, uh, blackouts, um, it, and they learn a lot uh, and then can continue to use it. So it turned out to be really a successful part of my life. Mm. And although I'm retired and I have more time, I miss my students <laughs> terribly. So, 
Yeah. So this play, um, To Washington Square, uh, premiered at Amherst. I'm curious, yeah. did you have a lot of your plays premiered at Amherst when you were teaching there? Um, I, huh, maybe. Let's see. Uh, my Tartuffe, which went on to have professional, a professional production, a play of mine called Two Chairs, um, To Washington Square, Oh, I'm going to leave some out now, which is just real. Oh, uh, a, a play of mine I dearly love called Paradise Street, uh, which finally uh, got a professional production in Los Angeles. But frankly, the Amherst College production was just beautiful, just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Michael Birdwhistle directed it, and we've worked together a lot. And it just, I couldn't ask for a better production. Uh, were there particular challenges to uh, writing for this kind of age group, college age actors? Did you um, think about that? I used it. Uh, as, you know, in Washington Square, Catherine is the same age I was when I was in college. And her boyfriend is a little bit older uh, than the the so-called adults uh, we cast, we just cast some really good student actors who played the adults Uh, and it worked. Oh, and this, and of course the set, because this is the thing about college theater is that they have the space and access to create beautiful, beautiful settings for these plays. So in New York, or even Los Angeles, um, you just don't have, you don't have the budget and you don't have uh, the space. So it's, they're very different kinds of productions. The production Mm -hmm. values it when I had, and I also had work done it at UMass when I was there. So, and that was some beautiful design. My God, a play of mine called uh, The Children of the Elvi was this gorgeous set. And, you know, that's just one of many. In this case, we, they created a real interior. So it was very realistic, this interior. And there was a lot of very real action. And here's the fun part. Um, originally, I love the novel and, and this, the, uh, there's an adaptation called The Heiress. Um, that has just kind of tied up this novel so that nobody else can really do anything. But uh, so I went back to the novel and the costume uh, advisor uh, was uh, wanted her student to design something modern and uh, Javier Chavez Chacon Javier Javier uh, didn't re- didn't want to do hoop skirts, and that's the period for this. And I didn't blame him. I just think that no, just no, okay. Mm-hmm. And we happened upon the '60s, which where I could use my own a, a sort of emotional experience, um, and that just turned out to be such a fortunate choice. So the costume design, he could actually do some uh, uh, 
haute couture and um, as well as some standard just high fashion clothes and uh, some hippie clothes. And uh, it was a great experience for him. It was a beautiful show. I yes. love that the idea of of setting a play at a certain time period because of what the costume designer was interested in designing. That's so interesting. I know, I know. It's um, it's rare that a costume designer would have that much of a choice in the professional theater, mm-hmm. but this was his senior project. So, uh, great, challenging, great kid, and so I was quite excited by this idea of picking this other uh, decade and my collaborator and director, Ron Bashford uh, was very interested in that as well. Ron Bashford and I had so much fun with this and like every other director I've worked with uh, his suggestions for story were Brilliant. He found out something really key to why uh, Catherine's mother made the choices she made. And he was reading and discovered this thing, which is that if you are pregnant at this time, um, and she was a doctor in the army, if you were pregnant, that's it. They cut you off and sent you home. Hmm. which was very tough on her because she's very, very career-minded. So that added so much depth and poignancy to her position. And in terms of her character, well, let me just say I've known a lot of women like her. Mm -hmm. And even from my kind of uh, farm girl, blue-collar, whatever, there still were versions of Catherine's mother uh, that have to do with how you dress and uh, looking a certain way. And this is, oh, here's the other cool thing. This was also the senior project of one of my favorite, favorite uh, students who is Hispanic. So I was able to use that as a way to create this tension between Dr. Eleanor Sloper, very, very white, very, very white, and Catherine Sloper, who was played by Michelle Escobar, who is uh, Hispanic, actually she's Panamanian, and dark, which was good. There was a tremendous contrast there. And you saw the mother's uh, prejudice racial prejudice against her own daughter. So I was able to write about that. Um, You know, if you just are true to your characters, it's amazing what comes out. Just trust the process. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and and um, on the the published edition of the play from Broadway Play Publishing, there's a, a great picture of the cast, you know, in in costume on the set, so you can get a sense of how visually rich the world of this play was. And and that that senior costume design student did a really wonderful job uh, with oh, the costume he did. design. He did, mm-hmm. and and the set design. I mean, isn't that gorgeous? I mean, this, this is the kind of work you get in. 
where there's a great shop, you know, that builds sets. Mm -hmm. And we've always had that. Uh, so um, the set design by Nora Smith, I think she did a brilliant, brilliant job. And it just looks so of that period and of that class of people. One of the really cool things is we needed a picture of Catherine's father, uh, whom I decided was Cuban, because I, I actually have close family friends who are originally Cuban. And uh, so I used that. And then I found this photograph of my dad and uh, who was Welsh, and you know, so the Welsh frequently have dark hair or ginger hair, and my dad had very, very dark, almost blue-black hair. So what I did was uh, take that picture and darken his skin, hmm. and hey, guess what? Cuban, Cuban <laughs> dad, very handsome as, as my father was, you know. So, you know, sometimes you work on something. And you're, you're just in the right groove and it just keeps giving you back more one gift after another, one gift after another. And that's what this this play was for me, this production. One thing that I noticed uh, in, in the play being set in the 1960s is that that sort of feels like the last era when more or less the world that Henry James was describing existed in any form. Like it's sort of the end of the kind of wasp aristocracy, the assumption that, you know, a certain set of, of families was the kind of undisputed center of American culture. Um, was that something that you had in mind through the writing process of it as this, this play kind of being a, a play about a, an, an end of a whole, of a whole era? You know, I, I didn't realize it. But yes, Andy, that's what happened. It, it, again, it goes with just, you know, being in the moment, honest and as true as you can to what's happening between the people and among the people. And yes, that was, it's, it's I think Henry James would have approved <laughs> or not. But anyway... Yeah, it is. It's the beginning of this huge social revolution we're still living in. Thank the Lord. Although there are times when it's just too much, you know, it's just too much. It's exhausting. Uh, and it's still wrenching. It's like almost uh, geophysical, these huge changes that came and are still happening and need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was so you're about the age that Catherine's character or you were about the age that Catherine's character is uh during this time period. So I, I'd be curious to know, you know, what was what was the nineteen sixties from the point of view of Connie Congdon? Well, after the president was shot, that's ripped the veil mm -hmm. and all this stuff happened, and I found out about things that had happened earlier, like uh, the civil rights movement, which I had an inkling about. I was in high school. Um, but this flood of history just ripped, you know, came through the veil and out into our lives. And we're finding out more and more and more and more. 
And I used to say to people, like, I can't sing the Star Spangled Banner without crying. And I realized mm. they may have thought because I was so moved. It's not it at all. It was because of the loss of mm. a kind of idealism uh, that I had that had to go. I knew mm. so little about slavery, really. And I knew more about the massacre of the Native Americans because I spent so much of my early life in Colorado and I knew Native people and particularly the Navajo, several friends. And so I knew all uh, more about that. And I had, I certainly knew that slavery was horrible and there were murders and beatings. And, um, and I remember, uh, the death of Emmett Till and, but I had no idea. I had no idea the carnage mm. that went on and is still going on. Um, so we're living in this very exciting period of history and to be a white person surrounded by all of this terrible history of non-white people, what they've gone through. Um, I knew a little bit about my ancestors and the clearances in Scotland and the potato famine, uh, where the first relative that I know I'm related to immigrated at the height of the potato famine, Mary Jameson. Of course, the last name would be the name of a whiskey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just that whole history, I knew a little bit about that. I found out more. Uh, also, the alcoholism that I, I think is definitely genetic. Uh, again, something else I shared with my Native American friends, and um, we all got sober. We had to. But the swath, it just, you know, it just kills families. Mm -hmm. So this, this ideal, you know, that we were in this ideal country called America, the loss of that ideal and then the replacement with more and more knowledge of what actually happened and who we actually are has been <sighs> – unbelievable, exciting, and terrifying process. And it yeah. just keeps coming. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah, once you start to to realize that you've been lied to about one thing, it, it never really stops this process of kind of discovering what sort of country we're, country we're actually living in. Exactly. I mean, it's the, the feminist movement and the... Um, gay lesbian movement um all of that i felt i i had more of a handle on um there's a great book called hidden history and it's about um oh, gay history it's a, it's about gay history in america mm -hmm. um and that's just one of zillions of books that are out but i read that and 
discovered all sorts of cultural things that uh, I thought I, I knew quite a bit about gay culture, gay male culture. And but I found out even more. I found out things that I was able to share with some of my gay male friends, um, like the use of the word faggot. Uh, it used to be pe people would think, oh, uh, it's because uh, faggots are like, you know, small pieces of wood and you throw them on the fire. And actually what I discovered in Hidden History is that the gay, gay males would use terms that the century before had been applied to loose women or expendable women. So that old faggot, Mrs. McCready, uh, would refer to the fact that she was an old lady and, you know, not really worth anything. So, and queen, that was the, a name for women who were, uh, loose women of a higher, uh, social status than your average hooker. And, you know, just all sorts of cultural history there that, it's so weird to live this life and not know the history of how we got here culturally, which is still, oh, in the word gay, gay, uh, it wasn't about being happy. There's another meaning, which is it's not about male homosexuality. It's about, again, women who are uh, loose women, you know, fairy loose women. And uh, so that's really interesting. That's the connection between loose women and gay men in terms of the terminology, the pejoratives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that have then been sort of reclaimed by those communities, um, you know, decades later, it sounds like. Yeah. And so now we have queer studies and I still, it still gives me a jolt because when I was growing up, uh -huh. <laughs> that was, was not was a nice word. Yeah. It was a hateful word and we didn't ever, but um, yeah, the reclamation, which I think is the only thing to do is just to reclaim those words and appropriate them in a positive way. So yeah, uh, like there's one, oh, there's, there's queering the Bible. Queering, uh, you know, uh, Les Miserables, queering and looking for gay themes, gay characters, possibly. Uh, it's very exciting, Andy. Very, very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really do feel like we're at a time. I mean, I've been thinking about this just with, in the context of theater, where all sorts of old assumptions are really going out the window at a at a very fast pace, and and I found it kind of hard to. To, to write during the past year or so, partially because of the stress of the pandemic, but also partially just because it seems like our culture is going through this, you know, earthquake moment. And it seems like, well, what do I, if I say something, if I write something now, it might be irrelevant in four months, you know, it, it feels like everything's moving so quickly. I, I agree. I still believe, however, that if you're honest in the moment, it will be valid. Hmm even if the terminology is will be used in a different way i think it's a um uh galway 
uh, Cannell said that that's what poetry does. You, you capture this moment. Hmm. Where are you this moment emotionally and and historically and what's happening right now? And that's all you can be responsible for. And that's our job is writers. So you don't have to second guess yourself because history will just history marches on and over us. Mm -hmm. so we just might as well just keep writing. Um, you recently got a an award from the Dramatist Guild, the Legacy Playwrights Initiative Award, um, yeah. which is sort of a lifetime achievement award. First of all, congratulations! Thank um, you. And, and second of all, what what was your what was your reaction when you found out you were going to win that award? I I was I was gobsmacked. <laughs> I, I was absolutely thrilled. I cried. I, you know, I, I, it just was phenomenal. I, I, it's I, it's hard for me to express. It's hard for me to express it, even even now that I've sort of gotten used to it. But to be honored in such a way has meant the world to me. Just amazing, amazing. And I want to thank the Dramatist Guild Fund and all those great people. And um, for, well, we'll just name two, Ann Catanio, Todd London, but there are others, and you know who you are. I mean, there, there are quite a few, uh, and it just, it's been, I, okay, I, I've run out of words. I'm a writer, and I don't know what to <laughs> say. Yeah. Yeah, the Dramatist Guild is such a great organization. I love that it's a guild. It makes me think of like people, you know, sitting around a big wooden table with flagons of mead or something, you know? Yeah, it is. It's a guild. I love that. You know, like the medieval guilds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my father would have been in a guild. Um, well, let's go. Shakespeare's father was a tanner and a glove maker. That's a guild. Marlowe's father made shoes. That's a guild. Hmm. And the and when people say, oh, well, William the Conqueror built this cathedral. Well, William the Conqueror didn't build a damn thing. It was the Masons <laughs> and those yeah. are the people that built it. But that whole guild system is, it, it does make me feel good. Now, I also have to say that the guilds banned Jews so you could not be in a guild if you were a Jew. Yeah. And this, if you just think about what that cuts you off from, um, there's this old Jackie Mason joke that says, no, we don't, no, uh, we, we don't, uh, whatever, we don't build patios. That's for, you know, Christian people. We hire somebody to do it. Mm -hmm. That's really bad telling of the joke, but it goes way back to the idea that somehow uh, Jews don't aren't good with their hands, which of course is ridiculous. Look at Seventh Avenue and the history <laughs> of garment making, and yeah, so that that gets me very that gets me very upset. But these old uh, attitudes of hate go so far back. Can you imagine since the guilds really ran 
medieval society and early Elizabethan society being cut off mm-hmm. from all of that mm-hmm. because you were Jewish. And then, of course, the English had banned the Jews for like 200 years or something. And that whole uh, that's Jewish history is a huge black hole that you cannot escape from just a big sucking black hole of of uh mistreatment and hate and uh so i maybe i'll just stop there but that's another thing as well yeah yeah, I'm, do you find that this is kind of the way your mind works, that you're kind of always thinking about both the present meaning of something and its kind of whole history as a, as a concept? I've noticed you've done that a couple of times in this interview. Is that kind of a habit of yours? Yeah, I can't help it. I, I, I can't help it. I always think back uh, and I read a lot of history as and or read at it. Uh, because I, I do think of that. By the way, I, I just wrote, I became obsessed with Shakespeare and Marlowe, and I've written a play called Hair of the Dog, <laughs> which is about Marlowe coming back after he's died, been murdered, to Shakespeare and scares the hell out of him. Um, and... Then I wrote another play that the Red Bull Theater is going to do. It's a 10-minute play, and its title is, If This Be a Bad Play, Then the Devil's in It. And uh, actually, the devil is in the play. Um, And it's about the event where uh, Shakespeare and Burbage, Burbage's father, had built this theater called the theater, and the landlord had raised the rent. And so in the middle of the night, the acting company basically took apart the theater, loaded it on barges, took it across the Thames. Oh, wow. And that, and built the globe from it. So huh. it's it's on that evening uh, where they're transporting this. and. Uh, and I really love it. I just loved, again, it's an iambic pentameter and, uh, rhyming couplets most of the time. Um, and you know, it's just, a, it's, it's really, it's such a good story. Uh, and have, and having the devil be the landlord, uh, <laughs> all landlords are devils. <laughs> yes. And there's a, there was a role for a female, and had I really thought about it, because I could have used Christine Nielsen, one of my favorite actors in the world, but it had already, the story had already galloped on before me, and I was running behind, just trying to keep up. So well, that happened. That's how you know it's working, right? That's how you yes. know that you're really, you're really on a roll. Yeah, that's right. Well, Connie, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts. I, I so enjoyed To Washington Square, and I, I so enjoyed um, getting to talk to you about it. Oh, listen, Andy, this has just been pure pleasure, and you're a good interviewer. Oh, thank you. And you more than you talk, which is more than you could say about so many. Uh, I had a character 
who was supposed to appear on Charlie Rose, and she was really nervous. And her friend said, listen, his 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 questions are interminable. Listen for the verb. And then you can figure out how to. Well, I didn't have to do that with you, you know. Fantastic. I'm I'm glad to hear it. Well, I'll I'll talk to you soon, Connie. Thanks so much for being on the program. You bet. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.